Chapter 10 of The Dawn of Medieval Europe, 476 to 918, by J. H. B. Masterman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Mayors of the Palace. In a previous chapter, we carried the history of the Frankish kingdom down to the end of the sixth century. After the ferocious record of the rivalries and contests of Brunhilde and Fredegonda, the chronicles of the Merovingian kings become a dreary record of ineffective figures that pass over the stage in long succession, decorated with the flowing hair that was the sign of royalty among the Franks, but neither wielding nor apparently desiring any real power. But as the Merovingian kings degenerated, their power passed into the hands of a new body of men, the mayors of the palace. The title of Major Domus or Magister Palatii was borrowed from the old imperial regime. The office grew up naturally as the Frank government became organized. Originally a household officer of the court, the mayor of the palace became, like the justiciar in Norman England, the king's right-hand man, controlling the administration when the king was at the wars, and watching over the relation of the loides to the crown. Where the supreme power was in the hands of a minor or of a woman, the power of the mayor was necessarily augmented. From the first, there seems to have been a difference between the mayors of Neustria and Burgundy, who were the champions of royal authority against the nobles, and those of Austrasia, who appear rather as the champions of the rights of the nobles against the crown. As a result of this, the mayoralty in Austrasia tended to become an hereditary office held by the leading noble family of the kingdom, while the mayor in Neustria is more often than not a man of humble origin raised to power by the favor of the crown. Dr. Hodgkin thinks it possible to detect in the position of the mayors of Austrasia the first beginnings of a protest by the Teutonic Eastern Division of the Frankish Kingdom against the claims of the Western Kingdom of Neustria to be the true centre of the Frankish Empire. It is attractive to think of the great Austrasian mayors as the earliest champions of German national independence. The great family with which for centuries the fate of the Frankish kingdoms was destined to be associated first appears in history at the moment when Brunhilde was making her last stand against Clotair, son of Fredegonda. Among the nobles who attached themselves to the cause of Clotair was Pippin, afterwards known as Pippin of Landen, and Arnulf. A year later, the See of Metz falling vacant, the people petitioned for the appointment of Arnulf, who lived circa 580 to 640. Arnulf was still a layman, but he had for some reason desired to lay aside secular life and retire into a monastery, as his wife Doda had done, with his consent, some years before. But to this the king would not consent, and as bishop of Metz he was retained among the advisers of the crown, while administering his diocese with self-denying devotion. At last, in 626, his importunities wrested from the young king Dagobert, a reluctant consent to his retirement, and he departed first to the monastery of Remiremont in the Vosges, and then, with a few companions, to the deeper solitude of Horemburg, 
where he spent the last three years of his life rejoicing to undertake the most menial offices. He left two sons, the younger of whom, Anze Giesel, married Pippin's daughter, Bega, and was the father of Pippin of Herstal. Pippin of Landen, who ruled from 622 to 639, remained in the world of politics from which his friend had fled, and in 622 became mayor of the palace in Austrasia, then under the rule of Dagobert as sub-king. Perhaps his control of the young sovereign was over-strict, at all events when his father's death raised Dagobert to the kingship of the whole Frankish realm and transferred his capital from Metz to Paris, Pippin seems to have been for some time in practical captivity. Dagobert's death in 638 set him free to return to Austrasia, but in the following year he died, lamented by all the men of Austrasia. Pippin left his son Grimoald, who three years later secured the position of mayor of Austrasia under Siegebert, in spite of the opposition of many of the Austrasian nobles. In Neustria, where Siegebert's brother was king, his mother appointed a relation of the young king as mayor, and so for a time averted the danger of the extension of Austrasian supremacy over Neustria. In 656 a significant event occurred. In that year Sigebert died and was succeeded by his son, a boy of eight years old. Grimoald, thinking that the rule of Fainéon kings had lasted long enough, sent the boy away secretly to an Irish monastery and raised his own son, Childebert, to the Austrasian throne. But the change was premature. The Austrasian nobles rose in support of the royal house, and Grimoald was carried off to Paris, where Clovis II was now ruling. There he was confined to a dungeon and bound with torturing chains, and at length, as he was worthy of death for what he had done to his lord, death finished him with mighty torments. Grimoald's premature bid for sovereignty seemed for a time to have ruined the prospects of his house, and the next thirty years of Frankish history is a dreary record of confusion and disintegration. The peoples on the frontiers of the Frankish realm began to shake themselves free from the Frankish yoke, and Thuringia, Bavaria, and the Vents beyond the Elbe defied the impotent rulers who kept the semblance of authority at Metz or Paris. The only strong man of the time was Ebroin, mayor of Neustria, whose character is drawn by the possibly biased ecclesiastical chroniclers of the time, appears as a compound of cruelty, avarice, and ambition. After a few years of his rule, the nobles of Neustria, led by Leodegar, bishop of Autun, whose name is still familiar to us as St. Leger, called the Austrasian king to their help and seized Ebroin and his puppet king. Ebroin was compelled to take monastic vows in the monastery of Luxeuil, and for a time Leodegar administered Neustria, till a fresh intrigue sent him to join his late enemy at Luxeuil. Next year the king died, and three puppet claimants were set up by different factions. Taking advantage of the confusion, Ebroin escaped from his monastery and succeeded in securing the office of mayor of Neustria again under his old puppet king, Theoderich. His first act as mayor was to fetch his rival Leodegar from Luxeuil and cause him to be blinded and a few years later beheaded, 
an act of cruelty that helped to earn the bishop the title of saint for seven years longer ebroin ruled neustria and burgundy keeping down with a firm hand all attempts to dispute his authority his only serious contest was in 679 when the austrasian nobles with pippin of herstal grandson of the old mayor of austrasia at their head dared the issue of battle with the neustrian tyrant but they were defeated with cruel slaughter and their lands laid waste by the victorious neustrians at last in 681 the murder of abroin brought his rule to an end and opened the way for the ascendancy of the austrasian leader at the head of a vast host of austrasians pippin of herstal marched against the neustrian king and a feeble person whom the neustrian nobles had chosen as mayor and at a great battle at testri put to flight the armies of the western kingdom and established his authority over the whole frankish realm the battle of testri is one of the most important turning points in the history of western europe for it raised to unchallenged supremacy the great family with whose fortunes those of the frankish kingdom were to be associated for more than three hundred years till the death of the last carolingian king in nine eighty seven severed the last link between east and west francia and gave to france a new dynasty and a new destiny warned by the fate of his uncle pippin wisely contented himself with the substance of power without laying claim to the name of king he might probably have set up as independent king of austrasia where he seems to have been the unchallenged head of the nobles but he preferred to attempt the harder task of holding the frankish kingdom together making austrasia the centre of his rule he set up his sons as soon as they were old enough as mayors of neustria and burgundy the special task that pippin set himself was the reduction of the peoples who had taken advantage of the confusion of the period to throw off the frankish yoke in a great battle on the northern frontier he defeated ratbod the king of frisia and compelled him to acknowledge the frankish overlordship and as the price of the marriage of the frisian king's daughter with his son grimuald he compelled him to allow christian missionaries free access to his people turning from the rhine to the danube pippin reduced the thuringians schwabians and bavarians to subjection and so re-established the ancient frontiers of the frankish kingdom where the sword had opened the way the cross followed in 690 a young northumbrian monk willibrord moved by missionary zeal landed with eleven companions in frisia and finding little encouragement there went south and at pippin's request settled at utrecht as a missionary in the west frisian territory that had lately been ceded to the franks with the approval of the pope which he went to rome to secure he laboured there for six years and then went again to rome to be consecrated as bishop of utrecht a long episcopate gave him the opportunity of carrying the christian faith not only to the frisians but also to the danes in the north and the unevangelized parts of francia a few years after willibrord's consecration another english monk arrived in rome to offer himself for work among the heathen tribes of germany this was winfried of crediton better known by his later name of boniface seven eighteen to seven fifty four he made an unsuccessful attempt to gain access to frisia 
and after two years in england returned to the work and was sent northward by pope gregory the second with a general commission to preach in germany in 723 after a strikingly successful mission among the hessians and saxons he returned to rome and was consecrated as bishop taking at the same time an oath of allegiance to the pope which marks an important step in the subjection of northern europe to papal authority for thirty years from 718 to 754 boniface is the central figure in the history of the german church and his influence served to keep that church in close subjection to papal authority he died in 754 slain by some heathen to whom he had gone as preacher of the gospel boniface was statesman and scholar as well as missionary an able administrator as well as an earnest preacher and his aim was to civilize as well as to christianize the heathen of his fatherland the sanction of the papal see was almost indispensable for the success of his efforts for the helpless feebleness of the merovingian kings and the strong self-assertion of the carolingians were altogether unfavorable to the growth and development of the church it is no exaggeration to say that since the days of the great apostle of the gentiles no missionary of the gospel has been more eminent in labors in perils in self-devotion and in that tenacity yet elasticity of purpose which never loses sight of its aim even when compelled to approach it by some other route than that which it proposed to itself originally End of chapter ten